Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. This podcast is a production of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about Primary Source by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Look at a map of the Middle East and North Africa, and one of the first things you'll notice is just how many countries there are in the region. But if you were to look at a map of the same region from the late 19th century, you'd notice pretty much the exact opposite. A lot fewer lines were on that map, there was a sizable Ottoman Empire, and there were several European colonies and protectorates, too. How did we get from that map to the one we know today? Where did all these countries come from? And perhaps most importantly, how did various peoples in the Middle East feel about all those changes? In this episode, we'll start the process of answering these really big questions by exploring the historical trajectories of the idea of nationalism in the region. This is episode 11, Imagining Nationhood in the Middle East. also very difficult to define. This is Professor Nagmi Sarabi, a historian at Brandeis University and the Associate Director for Research of the university's prestigious Crown Center for Middle East Studies. Professor Sarabi specializes in the history of the modern Middle East, but has a particular expertise on the topics of nationalism and revolutions in the region, which is why we were so excited to chat with her. A variety of people have given multiple, multiple definitions for it. For me, The best definition, even though it's problematic, is Benedict Anderson's definition of a nation, which is that it's an imagined community that imagines itself as sovereign and imagines itself as against another group. So that definition of the nation allows us to think about both affinity within a nation, but also an affinity of a group of people who define themselves against something else. That would be the simplest way of talking about a nation. Now, Benedict Anderson was a professor of political science at Cornell who wrote a now-famous book in the 1980s called Imagined Communities, in which he tried to explain the roots and spread of nationalism. While a lot of scholars disagree with some or all of his arguments, his core idea that nations are not immutable, but are in fact imagined and created, has become pretty much the starting point for any serious exploration of nations and nationalism. So nationalism is a sense of belonging to a nation, again, in the most basic way of thinking about it. Now you can belong to a nation but not have a sense of nationalism, some people believe. But again, I want to talk about Benedict Anderson in this case because I really like what he says when he says nationalism is that strange belief, is that abstract belief that leads you to do something extremely concrete, which is to sacrifice your life for this abstract concept of a nation. According to Anderson, nations are imagined because even though not all members of the nation know each other personally, 
they all share a common conception that they're bound together by shared culture or history or ethnicity or, or combination thereof. He also argues that nations are limited and sovereign. That is, they're separate from other nations and independent of other nations. Nationalism is that feeling of belonging to a nation or identifying as being a member of the nation. These are all pretty abstract concepts, so to clarify, Professor Sarabi likes to use a fun, illustrative example, one that resonates strongly with students here in New England. My favorite way of talking about nationalism is to talk about the Red Sox nation, because that is a real nation. It's as real as any other nation, and it, and it has all the qualities. It is an imagined community, i.e. not every member of the Red Sox nation knows the other person. It is limited in that it stops at the Yankees' borders, and it's sovereign. We're Red Sox nation. We are not Red Sox and Orioles nation. Lastly, keep in mind that nations and nationalism are products of the modern era, even if we tend to think of many nations as having always been there. We as historians, as scholars, as people who are looking at it from an academic perspective, give the idea of a nation and of nationalism a historical trajectory. We say it came about in a certain period of time. It was connected to a multiplicity of things. For example, some people connected to the rise of capitalism and capitalist markets and all the things that come from that development. But the people who feel a sense of belonging to a nation, one of the greatest parts of it is that you think this nation has always been there and it has always been there in the way that you imagine it to be. So it's almost like two beliefs that are pulling each other in opposite directions. One believes in the eternity of this nation, and the other one, which is the academic, says, no, there is a beginning to this feeling that you have, and it's constructed through forces outside of this great love that you have for this place. Okay, so let's apply this framework of nations and nationhood more fully to the context of the Middle East. When did nationalism emerge in the region, and when did the various peoples of the Middle East begin thinking of themselves as members of distinct and separate nations? The most agreed upon idea of when it developed is basically in the 19th century. Now, when we say the Middle East, we're talking about a very large area that has very different historical trajectories. So it depends, obviously, on what part of the Middle East you're talking about. But for the most part, people associate the rise of nationalism in the Middle East with 19th century and the ideas of becoming modern and the opening up of markets in the Middle East to imperialism to colonialism to encounters between the region and particularly western colonial forces which doesn't mean that nationalism is not real to the region because it came from the west it just means that a certain kind of encounter led people to think about what it means to be sovereign what it means to belong to a particular geographic area now, it may start in the 19th century with various ideas of what nationalism is. So you have this idea of Arab nationalism, which is very different from Iranian nationalism, which is completely has a different starting point than Turkish nationalism because there is no Turkey in the 19th century, right? That comes about in the later period. 
So you can kind of, if you had to sort of come up with a timeline for it, you would start with the sentiments, this growing sentiment of a belonging that is different than other types of belongings that you've had in that period in the 19th century. But for the most part, a nationalism that is connected to the kind of borders we know today comes about after World War I. That's when the Ottoman Empire falls. That's when the mandate system is created. That's when Turkey as a nation, as a nation state basically, is acknowledged. So you get more of this idea we have today of these particular borders with these kinds of peoples inside of it in the post-World War I period. So ideas of nationalism began percolating in the mid to late 19th century. And then when the Ottoman Empire dissolved after World War I, some of those sentiments had more room to grow. Turkey becomes a republic in the early 1920s as a result, and Saudi Arabia a sovereign kingdom about a decade or so after that. Other states like Egypt and Algeria and Syria, among many others, well, they'd remain European colonies or protectorates until mid-century. We'll get to them in just a bit because they're an important part of the conversation. But first, Professor Sarabi reminds us that the emergence of nationalism in the region was not inevitable. In fact, the idea of nationhood was actually pretty highly contested, and history could have played out much differently than it did, largely because there were so many different ways that people thought of themselves in the region during the interwar period. There's a lot in that period. There's a lot in the world, actually, in that period. So it's not just the Middle East. It's part of a larger global rise of a variety of um, identities. So in the case of the Middle East, I'm not even going to cover all of them. But obviously, you still have a sense of Ottomanism, even after the Ottoman Empire falls, for the obvious reason that just because the borders of an empire fall doesn't mean people's sense of identity goes away. But the thing is that being a member of the Ottoman Empire was overlaying a bunch of other identities, right? The easiest one is the religious identities. But then there's local identities, right? And then there's ethnic identities. And there's, in the local identity, there's a rural identity or an urban identity. And these made you feel like you belong to different communities. And so nationalism comes and sort of adds to that layer. It doesn't replace it immediately. So in the post-World War One, you know, the interwar period, as people like to call it, you have these multiplicity of ideas kind of mingling with each other. And then you add to that, of course, eventually communism, which itself is a transnational form of identity. It doesn't fall along ethnic lines. It doesn't fall along national lines. And you had very large communist parties in the Middle East in the 1930s. And there, so those are the other types of identities that in some ways competed with national identities and in some ways kind of sat uneasily with it. Elites in many of the newly formed nation states in the Middle East during this period worked purposely to make nationalism the primary component of people's identities. State-associated rituals often played key roles in accomplishing this. My favorite moment or story about thinking about how national rituals are created has actually to do with the ways in which in Iran in the 1930s, the development of national rituals was connected to all these other markers of modernity, one of which was cinemas. 
And one of the things that we know about and we have reports of from the 1930s is that as cinemas were being built, there was a discourse around cinema will build the perfect modern citizen. One of the things that they do in cinemas in Iran in the 1930s is that they start playing this new national anthem that had not existed before and telling people that they have to get up for the national anthem. Now think about that. Something that seems so obvious to us. Why would you have to get up when you hear a national anthem? There's nothing inherent in those two acts. And so what these institutions do in the 20th century throughout the Middle East is create these connections between these two things. And that's the power of nationalism because the minute it creates these two connections, you hear the national anthem, you stand up, it also seems like it's been an eternal thing. People have always done that. And yet they hadn't. There was an easy moment to point to and say there was no national anthem, there was no cinemas, and nobody got up. The collapse of the Ottoman Empire catalyzed the first wave of new nation-state building in the Middle East in the 20th century. A second wave occurred roughly a generation later, when many of the colonies and protectorates that I alluded to earlier became independent nation-states in the 1950s and 60s. But that transformative process of decolonization was neither clear-cut nor easy. Decolonization is an academic concept. It means a lot of things to different academics and a lot of times, but it kind of denotes the processes by which on a state and on an identity level, once the colonial forces had been kicked out, these states were kind of reinventing themselves, modifying themselves, which doesn't mean that they were kicking out all the colonial influences in them. That's almost impossible to do. It's built in, you know, the structures in some ways. But it basically talks about the period in which, for example, in the Middle East, post-1940s in particular, nation states begin to define for themselves what it means to be an independent state. Nor was it a foregone conclusion that people in the Middle East would divide themselves into the countries that we know today. In fact, some people in the region floated very different visions of the future, visions that reflected different conceptions of regional and ethnic identities. Take, for example, the idea of pan-Arabism, which was a popular mid-century belief among some that Arabs across the Middle East and North Africa should join together politically as Arabs because of their shared ethnic and cultural ties. But maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. For me, in order to say what pan-Arabism is, I'd like to move back just a little bit and say two words about Arab nationalism which sometimes are used interchangeably, but to me, they're not interchangeable concepts. The way I understand Arab nationalism is this idea that you have pre-World War I, that you can carve an Arab nation out of the Arab lands of the Ottoman Empire, often minus Egypt, which was developing a national Egyptian identity along the roots of its own colonial past in the 19th century and onwards. So Arab nationalism, we talk about Arab nationalism in connection to these ideas of the Arab revolt and T. Lawrence and all that good stuff. Okay, now jump forward again to the 1950s when pan-Arabism gained strength. When I think about pan-Arabism, I think about it as an identity along national lines for sure, but I also think about it as the challenge to nation states that begins with the state, as opposed to Arab nationalism, which is the challenge to 
Ottomanism that begins with a national identity. And what do I mean by that? We most often associate Pan-Arabism with the rise of Nasserism, as in Nasser becomes the Egyptian president after the 1952 revolution or coup. People associate Pan-Arabism in that particular period, so the mid-20th century, most closely with Nasser, and whose part of his idea was this Pan-Arabism, this idea that Arabness brings together all these nations that at that point had been separated through the mandate, through a whole variety of things, and that there is a pan-Arab national identity. But to me, the difference is that it was motivated through the actions of the head of the state, and it was a state-based joining of these nations. For some people, like Nasser in Egypt, pan-Arabism was more than just a thought experiment. It was an actionable vision for the future. The most concrete example of it is the creation in 1958 of the United Arab Republic, which created a non-contiguous state of Syria and Egypt that fails three years later. People think its failure kind of means that what a crazy idea who has a nation state that's not connected to each other and all of that. But to me, the fact that the United Arab Republic failed, and the reasons why it failed, which superficially had to do with the fact that the Syrians thought that the Egyptians were basically their new colonizers, that this was supposed to be a joining of two states, but it was actually Egypt just telling Syria what to do, tells you something already by the mid-20th century about how strong these ideas of identity built around both states and nations were in the region at the time. Connected to Pan-Arabism, of course, is Ba'athism. Again, Ba'athism, which you have primarily in Syria and Iraq. And in fact, technically, the current Syrian regime is still a Ba'athi regime. Again, a major component of them was, at the time, Pan-Arabism. That Arabness is the primary identity. Proponents of Pan-Arabism were ultimately unsuccessful in creating a single Arab state. But that doesn't mean we should completely discount them or the role their ideas played in the history of the modern Middle East. All of the alternatives to nationalism and nation-statehood fail. But the fact that they fail as a project doesn't mean that their ideas don't linger in the air. They manifest themselves in a different way. So. There are still Nasserists in Egypt, right? There is still a sense of connection, which is not the same as Pan-Arabism, and is not the same as Ba'athism. These are historically specific concepts, but they linger on as possibilities, about as, as the fact that what we have today was not, you know, written in stone. It was not necessarily, this was not where we had to end up. And what about today? Well, it turns out that nationalism and the role of nation-states in the region are still facing challenges from some groups who have very different visions of what the Middle East should look like. Then again, the jury might still be out on this one too. The rise of groups like ISIS, the rise of groups like Al-Qaeda, for some people also the success of the Muslim Brotherhood in Tunisia and Egypt after the Arab Spring was seen as Oh, now we are finally seeing the breakdown of Middle Eastern nations and because, and the argument went, these are such weak roots, 
you know, it only goes back to World War One, and they weren't really a country, like Syria was not a real country and Iraq was not a real country. And the idea that the primary identity of all these places was their religious identity, the sectarian identity. And so this argument about these are challenges to the nation, to, to nationalism, was an argument that came from the outside. And I say that because one of the things that has always struck me is that the rise of all of these challenging forms of mobilization and group identity did not, I didn't see or meet anyone who was like, woke up and said, well, now, you know, my sense of belonging to this place has only been a hundred years in the making. And well, now somebody is challenging it. Therefore, I no longer feel this way. That's not how national identities, that's not how any identity works. And so I kind of want to put an asterisk next to the idea of challenging and to say, yes, the intention is to challenge it. What effect do these challenges actually have on people's sense of identities? I don't think we can say yet. Finally, Professor Sarabi offered us this pretty insightful comment, which we thought was particularly relevant to educators, and especially to those of us who work with young people in exploring and making sense of the past. Maybe I'm biased, but I think history is the most potent tool of nationalists. And by that I mean, you cannot create a sense of a never changing, eternal, has always been here and will always be here identity without employing history to do that. Much of the work of nationalists and particularly national elites was to create a conception of the past that fit with what they wanted the nation to be in the present. This idea that we have always been great and that our present may not be the greatness that we had in the past, but we're going to strive to make that happen again existed in quite a big number of Middle Eastern states, Iran, Egypt, even in Turkey. And Turkey is very interesting, right? Because they had to actually create this racial, cultural idea of a Turkic state because they basically, Anatolia was all they inherited from this multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious Ottoman Empire. And so much of the historical imagination of the Turkish nationalists is precisely that, the historical imagination of the Turkish nationalists. But what's powerful about nationalism is that once you believe it, then that is what you believe the past to have been. And it becomes such a strong point of contention trying to undo it. That's why I think history is very subversive in a lot of well, in everywhere that I know, I can't think of a certain any country that can shrug its shoulders to debates about history is in popular culture and in the media. So I would say it's an essential part of nationalism. You can't do without it. Nationalism and nationhood are incredibly hard to define, even for scholars. So how can we make these ideas accessible to teenagers? 
To help us answer this, we took a trip up to Andover, Massachusetts to meet a high school teacher there who's been doing just this in a course she teaches on the modern Middle East. I'm Katie Roosh. I am a history teacher at Andover High School, and I teach modern Middle East history. I think we started the course about five or six years ago. I worked with one other teacher on really trying to frame this and form this course. I really want kids to develop the skill of empathy. I really see empathy as a skill to be learned and to be practiced, and that's really a part of every course that I teach, and it's definitely an enormous part of teaching the history of the modern Middle East. I want them to be able to understand how to analyze point of view and to be able to develop some opinions about what's going on in the world around them um, and to also keep their mind open and recognize that they may know something, but they don't know everything and they should be prepared to change their mind. To accomplish this, Katie makes identity and nationalism central themes in the course. Nationalism has played such an enormous role in history of the Middle East in various ways. And I don't believe that you can really understand the way the Middle East is structured today and the political trends, social trends that go on without understanding, at the very least, from the late 1800s to the present day and those nationalistic trends and the ways in which they've developed, but also how they've been used. And in some cases, I might even say manipulated by various groups in various ways. I think historical movements in general, or in large part at least, are driven by identity and the way that people see themselves, the way they identify with particular groups. And that drives a lot of their, not only allegiances, but also their actions. And so I think understanding history, understanding historical movements is part and parcel of understanding nationalism and vice versa. Katie's pretty lucky in that she gets to teach an entire course on the modern Middle East. But even if you only have space in your curriculum to touch on a few key moments or issues in the region, she recommends some strategies that can help your students better explore and understand the underlying ideas of identity and nationalism. I'm a big fan of essential questions because there's not a single answer and it allows kids to really wrestle with big ideas that are relevant to whatever we're studying, but also probably to other things in their current world. And they can form opinions on those particular issues. So some examples of essential questions that we use are, is Turkey a democracy? And within that, they have to address what defines a democracy. Is democracy more than just one person, one vote? Um, is it possible to have a democratic, ethnic, or religious nation state? Are those things mutually exclusive, particularly if not everyone is considered an equal part of the nation? Katie also suggests finding ways to get students to consider other points of view. I think approaching any controversial issue, really, particularly with regard to either nationalism or identity, approaching it from the perspective of the people involved rather than looking from the outside in or really looking from the inside out is helpful not only in developing the skill of analyzing point of view, but it forces kids to really try to understand the players involved rather than well, what do you think about this from an outsider's perspective or from your own personal experience, but you really have to take into account the experiences of other people, which I think is a valuable skill. And I think it helps in dealing with those sorts of tricky issues where kids might want to just kind of dig in their heels and stick with whatever it is that they had originally believed in. By using identity as a frame for much of her Middle East curriculum, Katie's found over the years that her students develop a greater appreciation for nuance and complexity in the region, as well as a desire to keep learning more. I think it's really allowed them to wrestle with the complexity of things. 
a lot of kids come into the course not even understanding what ethnicity is, but I think they walk away with a better understanding of many of the different identities, and from there they can start to understand current issues a little bit more clearly, a little bit less perhaps stereotypically. I think the course challenges the perceptions and assumptions that a lot of students have had. And as I said, it complicates the issues. Uh, they engage with multiple perspectives. They're better able to analyze what motivates various groups. And they're ready to talk about it. I think starting with ideas of identity, again, makes it accessible for kids. It makes people accessible for kids. And I find that they walk away eager to learn more about the world around them. Nationalism and nationhood are tricky concepts to pin down, but we hope our discussion today has given you some frameworks and tools that can help you explore these ideas in meaningful ways, particularly as they've played out in the modern Middle East. Understanding how different peoples have thought of themselves in the past and how identities can change over time can help your students become more informed and empathetic global citizens. Thanks for joining us and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about this podcast, our sponsors, and for free online resources that can help you teach about identity and nationalism in the Middle East, visit www.primarysource.org podcasts. And if you love this podcast as much as we do, show us that love by reviewing us on iTunes. More reviews means more new listeners, which ultimately means more great episodes for you.